Bookstack with Richard Aldous, the Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. Coming up on the show today, Van Jackson, author of the new book Pacific Power Paradox, American Statecraft and the Fate of the Asian Peace. Van, welcome to Bookstack. Thanks for having me. And congratulations on the book. So what is the Pacific Power Paradox? The Pacific Power Paradox is the recognition of America's historical role in Asia being contrary to what Washington imagines it is, and in fact being that America has shown three faces toward Asia since the 1970s. Uh, and I call these the, the face of the, the vital bulwark, the aloof hegemon and the imperious superpower. And so what it's capturing, uh, this phrase Pacific Power Paradox, is that uh, paradoxically, America has simultaneously sometimes been Asia's, like, the superhero that we imagine ourselves to be, its firefighter, but also its arsonist just as often. And so there's an attempt to try and reckon our self-image and our prevailing narrative that guides statecraft with the historical reality that most of us who watch Asia carefully are fully aware of, but just trying to like close that gap. And it, it is interesting because you say right at the very beginning that America as a Pacific superpower has not always lived up to its benign image. This was one of the things that was hard for me to come to terms with. This This argument was not how the book started out, to be honest. Like it started out as a a critique of Trump and like living through the Trump years. My second book was about the North Korean nuclear crisis, the book before this. And uh, I, you know, in that book, I had documented pretty closely how we were involved in a lot of like brinkmanship versus brinkmanship. The case that I made was the nuclear crisis in 2017 was the worst that we had faced since the Cuban Missile Crisis in 62. And watching the United States driving the crisis was um, an awakening for me and one of many ways in which I saw U.S. foreign policy in Asia being a threat to stability. And it's like, well, how can that be? And then eventually, so initially it was a book that was going to critique Trump's Asia policy. But then the thing that I found was like there were antecedents to everything Trump was doing in Asia, including to like the fire and fury stuff. The willingness to risk nuclear war also had antecedents in Asia. And so um, there was the, the fact that like Trump was so similar on Asia to previous presidencies was the thing that was ultimately discomforting. And this is what led me to like, oh, there's a narrative reckoning that needs to happen. And that's how the book took shape. And of course, historically, not least of which is that, uh, that Asia still remains the only place that, uh, the United States has launched a major nuclear attack. Yes. And nobody is going to forget that anytime soon, I don't think. One of the, the things that you say as well about um, the United States in Asia is that it's not just this point about the benign image, but you often uh, throughout the book challenge the idea that America has even been the indispensable power in the region. Why, why is that? That's right. Because you, you cannot claim to be an indispensable power as a continuity, as a, as a continuous thing. If there are moments when you're literally directly yourself holding at risk this thing that we call the Asian peace. So there's an analytical construct at the heart of this book that allows me to make this argument. It's not 
it's not raw history, it's framed out history. And the framework for it is this empirical puzzle called the Asian piece. So it's the absence of interstate wars, new interstate wars in Asia since 1979, in Asia being East Asia and the Pacific Islands region. And it's, it's the fact that like the United States was willing to directly take risks against the sources of the Asian peace repeatedly. And sometimes in like the most gratuitously direct ways, like the fire and fury of 2017, you're not indispensable if you're holding a fire, like if you're holding a lit bomb and you're threatening to blow everyone else up, right? That's not indispensability. But there are times when it's true that America has been the buffer between peace and war. Like America is one of the reasons why there have been several near miss crises that didn't escalate to war. But then paradoxically, and this is the paradox, those crises, the origins of those crises themselves implicate U.S. policy, U.S. actions. So like it's, it's America's approach to Asia as if it's indispensable that embrittles security in such a way that it calls forth these crises. And then we just happen to rely on like adept crisis management or luck or whatever to get through them. So that's the paradox. We're on both sides of the security fence in Asia. Um, and whenever that is, it's not indispensability. You know, that, that's too crude of a narrative. Yeah, it's, it, it is interesting because you, you do make the point that too often scholarship and, and, and policymakers too have been very unwilling to, to recognise that, that point that you were making there about indispensability, that Hillary Clinton is an, an example that you give saying Asia is eager for our leadership. We have an irreplaceable role in the Pacific. I mean, that, that does seem to sum up a lot of thought, not just uh, during the uh, Obama-Clinton uh, years, but, but much more broadly in the period that you're covering. Yes, 100%. And th that was, I mean, so I came from the world of Washington. I was raised on the, the good unipolar moment, American exceptionalism. I, I worked in the Pentagon for five years under Obama. And this is what we had internalized. The Hillary Clinton narrative is the water that we swam in. Like Joe Nye called us Asia's oxygen. John Mearsheimer called us Asia's pacifier. And we just took as a given that American primacy, uh, particularly military primacy, was the pacifier, was the oxygen, right? To this point about indispensability. And that, if, if that's what you believe, and we all did believe it, then you, you have no way to account for the North Korean nuclear crisis. You know, you have no way to account for the Asian financial crisis in the 90s. You know, you, everything is just mysterious and exogenous why it happens. Um, and that owes partly to blind spots in the way that we approach Asia from this exceptionalist standpoint. Like exceptionalism is a pathology. And so when we fail to see how we're implicated in the actions, in the outcomes in the world that like we don't like, we end up having a narrative that like drifts further and further away from reality. And that's danger. That's risk. Yeah, I suppose one of those blind spots uh, you say throughout the book is that sometimes we actually forget that Asia had been racked by widespread violence for you know a good couple of centuries before this uh, so-called Asian peace began in 1979. The 20th century, you say, was particularly unkind. It was the bloodiest battleground of World War II. There was the nuclear attack that we uh, talked about uh, earlier on uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So you know, this, that, that violence within the region, this new period almost is the exception rather than the rule, it seems to me. 
Yes, and that was what attracted me to it as a as a logic puzzle or empirical puzzle, I should say. That it was this like, well, Asia has been really racked by violence for a long time, and then it suddenly, in relative terms, stops. And that is something that calls out for explanation within the like IR international relations and Asian security literature. There are a bunch of scholars who have focused on this thing that we call the Asian piece because it is a remarkable thing that calls out for explanation. But one of the things that I try to do in the book, because I'm heavily communicating to laymen, but also to policymakers, not just like wonky scholars, is to try and say like, okay, there are the scholars of the Asian piece have pointed to all these sources of regional stability to account for how we've not had interstate wars since 1979 in this like crucial region. And uh, it's what where everything nets out is that the Asian piece is bigger than any one factor or actor. And the thing that's really hard to swallow for me when I was initially taking on this project was that America was directly involved in almost all of that violence going down in Asia prior to the onset of the Asian peace. Well, a constant, a constant being America or American, you know, primacy is not going to explain a variable, you know, and we have this huge shift from war-tornness to stability. And the, so right off the bat, you know, there's something off about trying to insist that it's like America is the superhero here. But then beyond that, the, the historical record just proves out that like there's multiple sources of stability that have converged in time uh, during this period of the Asian peace. And we're, we're lucky for that. And that's fortunate. Part of the thing, my parting shot is a little bit that like those sources are actively eroding and U.S. policy is on the wrong side of the Asian peace in a lot of respects. Yeah, I mean, it does raise the question why the, the Asian peace was, uh, man, was, was managed to be sustained during this period. I mean, because so many of those traditional things that we would have seen before, the old rivalries, terrorism, ethnic violence, territorial disputes, um, even genocide in the, uh, in the case of Burma, the, the, these things have still been there. Why, why was it that uh, despite all these terrible things still going on, that things did manage to hold together in the region? Yes, important question. So what I argue in the book, I have a chapter called The Asian Peace as a Guide to Statecraft. And in that, I, I work through the literature and all of the explanations for the Asian Peace and the limits of each of those explanations. And what I show is that there's no less than like six sources of the Asian Peace. One is U.S. forward presence in the region and its alliance network. General deterrence has played a role certain times and places. Part of that paradox, again, is that like sometimes in the name of deterrence, we do things that directly threaten the peace. So it's it's not a like stable source of peace necessarily, but it's been a positive role sometimes, right? Uh, also, the, the big sources of the Asian peace have been intra-regional economic interdependence and Sino-US detente or like the great power modus vivendi between China and the U.S., it's not an accident that normalization of Sino-U.S. relations was 1979, also the same year of the start of the Asian peace, right? And so great power detente was a, a vastly unappreciated source of stability. Like people forget that, you know, under, under 
pre-detente period, China had a revolutionary foreign policy. It was exporting military adventures and military violence around the region, you know? And so detente was a total 180. And as China evolved, it evolved within a framework of cooperation with the other great power being America. Um, and that's been a huge source of stability in like direct and indirect ways. And so you have multiple and then other sources of stability being uh, regionalism and uh, democratization or good governance. And so all of these things get some credit for the Asian peace. And there has always historically, even within this Asian peace, been a kind of a waxing and waning, if you like, of American attitudes and policies that uh, you show how the Nixon, Ford and Carter administrations really laid down the kind of the framework for the Asian peace. But then when the Reagan administration comes in, we see a much higher risk reward approach to security in the region. So it's not unusual, is it, to see these different policy approaches, even within a period that looks as if it somewhat forms a whole. That's right. E each presidency kind of had its own risk propensity. Um, and the Reagan administration, Fried Zakaria characterized the Reagan administration as having like a high cost, high risk approach, a willfully, self-consciously high cost, high risk approach to foreign policy generally, but um, especially in Asia. And in order to not be sort of um, lazy with characterizations about uh, risk, I used the framework of the Asian peace as the scorecard, if you will, to, to like index risk. So when you talk about risk, you have to have a, a reference point or like a point of equilibrium, right? And so I use the sources of the Asian peace as that reference point. And that makes it easy to say without being, you know, blamey or whatever, that this president had this, this sort of disposition toward risk. This president took risks in this way, right? And when you take that approach, um, we see that the Reagan administration and the Trump administrations were um, by far the sort of like most risk acceptance uh, in terms of like approaching the Asian peace and Asian security. It's interesting as well that there's definitely a theme which has emerged on the podcast in some of the books that uh, we've covered. Uh, writers like Mary Cerotti, uh, Jim Cronin, who we had on last week, that at that moment at the end of the Cold War, the unipolar moment that you described earlier, really does seem to have been a missed opportunity. You describe it here as a kind of a liberal hubris in not taking the time to rewrite and, and rethink relationships. And that's as true in Asia as it is in other parts of the world. Yeah, it's unfortunate. And I didn't I didn't hammer the point home too hard in this book, possibly in a future project. But it was a very rare moment in which we could have anchored stability and world politics in something deeper and more durable than the inherently precarious concept of deterrence, you know, like still resting on uh, American primacy and the ability to out-escalate an opponent in that window of time was a little bit nonsensical. Um, it did provide some, it wasn't pure evil or something, like it provided some measure of reassurance to policy elites across Asia. So you talk to like Singaporean policy elites or South Korean or Japanese policy elites at the time, they're looking for continuity. In America, there was a lot of like liberal triumphalism in the unipolar moment but initially, a lot of Asia was, you know, concerned about like, well, what, what does this mean for change that might come to the region 
everybody, you know, save North Korea was invested in like uh, some level of the status quo because it was the, I mean, this is hegemony, right? Like it was a system in which they were able to develop their economies and put territorial disputes on the back burner. And that meant that they could have these regimes, many of which were authoritarian, could have legitimacy, indexing that legitimacy to economic growth instead of to like ethno-nationalism or, or, you know, revanchism or territorial disputes. And like, that was a non-trivial part of, of stability. We missed a counterfactual window when we could have tried to build a deeper or more durable piece that didn't necessarily rely on us so heavily. Yeah, and it's it's interesting that the the chickens coming home to roost from that seems to come not just with 9-11, but also the 2008 financial crisis. And you show how the US and North Korea being on the brink of war, direct antagonism between China and the US over Taiwan, Sino-Indian border disputes with regular incursions into Indian territory by the Chinese and so on and so on. The list, the list just goes on that the last decade or so uh, really has seen this kind of gradual ratcheting up of tensions. Yes. And that this ratcheting up of tensions, the re-emergence of mass casualty violence in like Myanmar, for example, the nuclear crises that we're having with seemingly greater frequency, all of that, the fact that all of this is happening is what I take as a sign that the sources of the Asian peace are eroding. So when you take it as a totality, um, and well, why is that? And that's when the historical record becomes quite useful and a reckoning between narrative and re historical reality become like even more essential. Are we, it's not so much that like America can decisively influence what happens in Asia whether Asia remains stable or not, but it claims to be a hegemon still. It claims to have leadership. It still has military primacy in certain respects. And so given all that, the United States is in a position to influence the region either favorably or unfavorably. And the measure for whether it's influencing favorably or unfavorably, I think should be whether we're on the side of bolstering the sources of the Asian peace or not. What I see is that we're largely not, but I, I don't want to be clear, like, I'm also not putting this all on the United States, right? It's it's an interactive thing. Yeah, although you you do say that Asia is not well served by a power suffering, you say, from self-aggrandizement, and you point out neither is America. That uh, So the, 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 definitely the role of the United States is something which is central to your critique. And I guess underpinning, you know, much of the antagonistic relationship between the United States is this question raised by people in, uh, in, in books like the Thucydides Trap, for example, by uh, Graham Allison of, you know, is this a, a new kind of clash of civilizations that will ev eventually end in some kind of direct military conflict? We see changes in Chinese behavior that are concerning starting around 2007, 2008. By 2010, it's clear that China is on a different uh, wavelength than I guess we had maybe assumed. But the, 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 the increase in assertiveness by China, if that's what we're concerned about, then the idea that like the source of, of the problem is a clash of civilizations is not compelling because, well, it's the same civilization pre and post 2008. If, it, if you want to personalize this and say it's 
the, the problem is that Xi Jinping is, is a tyrant and a totalitarian. Well, I'm not going to deny those characterizations, but as an analytical explanation for the thing we care about, which is the rise of assertiveness of Chinese behavior or whatever, Xi Jinping is not a compelling answer because he doesn't slide into that slot until really 2013, 2012 at the earliest. Um, and so the leader-focused arguments to account for Chinese behavior that we are concerned about is not compelling either, you know? And so and, and the ideological claims about Chinese behavior are also not super compelling to the extent that they focus on communism because China is, you know, neoliberalism's Frankenstein monster. It's neoliberalism's, like, greatest success story, but the success is kind of a nightmare in a certain way, you know? And so, like, it's, it's hyper-capitalist, right? It's just that it's a form of state capitalism that, you know, works against our perceived interests. And so, ironically, we're deciding to, like, mimic that. We're going down a similar path of state capitalism, in fact, in the name of smiting them. And so, like, yeah, there's, there's all these, like, potential sources of explaining the China that we don't like. But I find most of them uncompelling. I wonder as well if there's a, a parallel with what's going on in Europe uh, with the war in Ukraine, that just as that war has made European countries think kind of harder about their own security arrangements and cooperation and to some degree reinvigorated the Western alliance, is something similar going on in Asia because of the perceived threat of China? For example, I noticed that uh, this week, that Japan and India are holding joint military exercises before the G20 in Delhi. Now, you know, that's the, that's the kind of unexpected alliance between countries that would have been unthinkable 10 years ago. To a certain extent, yeah. The, the region is breaking in two directions at once right now. Um, you have a, a notionally liberal cohort in Japan. And, and actually, liberal is probably not a great description if you're going to include India. But it's like you have this block of staunchly aligned countries, uh, Australia and Japan primarily, but then to some extent also India uh, on defense matters anyways. Um, and then you have at the same time the rest of the region pretty much acting in a kind of non-aligned strategic hedging manner. And so a lot of the smaller countries in the region, they're not supportive of Sino-US rivalry. And so collective balancing in the defense realm, that kind of thing, they're not they're not interested in that. They're, because that heightens rivalry processes. Rivalry is bad for the region. The last thing the region wants in the main are is geoeconomic blocks, right? Even Japan doesn't really want geoeconomic blocks, but it's, you know, it's the client state relative to the U.S., so it has to kind of go along with the U.S. to a certain degree. And so you have this bifurcation of the region responding either to China's rise, uh, so that's like the Australia-Japan thing, or to Sino-U.S. rivalry per se. And the response to that is more kind of strategic non-alignment or hedging. Yeah, it was one of the, I, I thought, one of the most intriguing and interesting parts of the book where you you talk about how strategists are use, beginning to use the term Indo-Pacific rather than Asia-Pacific as the strategic baseline, the, exactly those countries that you were talking about, the importance of South Asia, countries like India, the likes of Australia, as a way to balance China. What I was particularly intrigued about was that you say that that offers hope uh, but also that you've expressed a deep scepticism uh, about it, that it may well just be the kind of intellectual fad 
that in Washington that should always set off flashing warning lights for us. Yeah, the the phrase Indo-Pacific, it, it started to become normalized in policy circles a bit more in the last couple of years, but it's basically this, for the Trump, during the Trump years, it was a shibboleth about the degree to which somebody was an insider in the larger project of basically kneecapping Xi Jinping. It was the, the language or the idiom or the signifier that said, we are on the anti-China coalition. And that is, like, it's pretty well documented, but like the other countries have found use in this phrase, Indo-Pacific. And so now it doesn't mean any one thing, but the thing that troubles me is that if you think of Asia as the Indo-Pacific, you are shrouding, you're erasing the Asian piece itself because the Asian piece is geographically bounded. It's only East Asia and the Pacific. The Cargill War, among other things, means that like logically and historically, South Asia and the Indian Ocean region are not part of the Asian piece. And so there's like a real analytical basis for pushing back on the notion of the Indo-Pacific as an alternative or substitute for Asia. But that's not to say that there's no credence to the Indo-Pacific. There are flows of goods and things that cross the Indo-Pacific. And you have these minilateral constructs like the Quad, which is, you know, Australia and Japan on one side of the region and then India on the other. Um, so it's become this thing that means many things to many people now. And that could be a source of, of good things or disastrous things. Yeah, I get that. And I guess that answer shows just how high the stakes are, but how difficult it is also to find the right answers. But, you know, you you make the point rather alarmingly uh, at the end of the book that uh, Asian security is essentially unsound today. And the implications of that, you say, are that we risk sleepwalking our way into war. Yes, uh, I'm very concerned about that. Because when you look at the sources of the Asian peace historically, right? Detente between the great powers, obviously that was an underappreciated source of stability and it has been replaced by rivalry. Does the US have total control over that? No, but if we care about the Asian peace, it isn't about, well, do we have total control or not? It's about, are the sources of the peace still there or are they disappearing? And the answer is they're disappearing, right? US theories of deterrence since the Trump years have pushed the Pentagon toward like more course of signaling and more risk and crisis proneness. It happens that Biden is a good crisis manager. Um, so we're lucky right now, but that's not going to continue forever. Economic interdependence. This is the thing Biden's taking the greatest risk against, right? Actively threatening economic interdependence with these industrial policies and national security Keynesianism that reroutes globalization as we know like the global economic order right and it's that economic order that had allowed asian states to develop while putting sources of conflict and ethno-nationalism on the back burner and so there was an east asian development model that offered the promise of growth and stability and therefore legitimacy and there is no east asian development model in this new geoeconomic block and because we're so fixated on China, we don't even care to pay attention to that. Like, that's not even been a factor in our minds. But you have to remember, that's a major source of the Asian peace, right? Democratization is obviously in the decline as a regional and global trend. And then regionalism is, is robust 
in Asia as a source of peace, but it's proven to be most feckless regionalism on the issues that most directly concern war. So it's like, on what basis do we hope to preserve stability in this region when all the historical sources are on the back foot? That That's concerning. And finally, Van, you're speaking to us from New Zealand, where you live now. I just wonder, how different does all of this look from New Zealand to the time when you were actually living in Washington? What kind of different perspective has it given you being part of a different uh, framework for the problem? It Being here has made it possible to see what Washington does from a perspective other than what we internalize as Washingtonians. So it makes it possible. I don't know that I could have written this book had I still lived and worked in Washington for political reasons, but also for sort of like ideological blind spot reasons. So New Zealand has given me a lens of dispassion with which to, um, you know, view the situation. So the book is Pacific Power Paradox, American Statecraft and the Fate of the Asian Peace. It's written by my guest, Van Jackson and published by Yale University Press. Uh, But for now, Van, congratulations again, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Thanks so much. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Laura Silverman. Do join us again next week. But for now, this is me, Richard Alder, saying thanks for listening. (laughs) 